0: You'll join me in Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1. This morning we are looking at the end of verse 18 through 26 as we continue in our series through Paul's letter to the church at Philippi. Our title of our sermon is For Your Joy. And the keywords for our worshipers in training are live, die, and joy. If you want to follow along in the Blue ESV Bible, you can find that on page 980. Page 980. One of the great missionary heroes of the faith is a man by the name of John G. Patton. He was a Scotsman born in 1824 and from the age of 23 to 34 he had a very successful urban ministry. He ministered to uh, people, uh, homeless people in their population, a very large group that he served until he was called to foreign missionary service. Patton was an ordained minister with the Reformed Presbyterian Church in Glasgow, Scotland and I really wish I had time to tell you his whole story, it is an amazing story of gospel triumph and courage and conviction, really a remarkable work that God did with an incredible man. But one of the admirable things about Patton was his mindset, his drive even prior to going on the mission field to a string of islands called the New Hebrides Islands. Now that's uh, Venuata. If you draw a line from, uh, from Hawaii, to Australia, you'll cut right through the New Hebrides Islands, just to give you some geographical orientation. Well, as missionaries often have to do, Patton had to go around to churches to let them know of his plans to try and gain support and to gain uh, laborers who would raise funds, send him off and pray for him. Uh, Part of this was mentioning that he was going to a place that all of the churches knew historically had already uh, been... Uh, attempted to be reached with Christian missionaries. Just 19 years prior, two men named John Williams and James Harris were sent out by the London Missionary Society to the New Hebrides. That was in 1839. The men got off the boat, and within minutes, literally minutes of disembarking, they were killed, they were cooked, and they were eaten by cannibals. Now, this wasn't an unknown fact. This was very well known. It had a great impact, a very poor impact, on the missionary service of uh, the people of London, especially for many years to come. But one church he came to, Patton was talking about the work he was about to do in the New Hebrides. An older man named Mr. Dixon stood up and said very loudly, The cannibals! You will be eaten by cannibals! To which Patton quickly replied, Mr. Dixon, you are advanced in years now, and your own prospect is soon to be laid in the grave, there to be eaten by worms. I confess to you that if I can but live and die serving and honoring the Lord Jesus, it will make no difference to me whether I am eaten by cannibals or by worms. And in the great day, my resurrection body will rise as fair as yours in the likeness of our risen Redeemer. And so in April 1858, Patton set sail to the New Hebrides with his wife, Mary. They reached the island of Tanna seven months later, and four months afterward, both his wife and newborn son died. However, Patton stayed. He served on the island for four more years. He was run off of that island and driven to another island in 1862, where he lived and worked the remaining days of his life. Today, 85% of the population of the New Hebrides Islands identify as Christians. The largest church is the Presbyterian Church, which alone speaks volumes about his influence there. It's an amazing story. John Patton's autobiography is fascinating. I would encourage any of you to read that, to be inspired by his life and ministry. But think about what he said. It will make no difference to me whether I'm eaten by cannibals or by worms, and on that great day, whatever happens, I will be raised from the dead and made again into the likeness of Christ, our risen Redeemer. Now, if you recall from our sermon last week, as we looked at verses 12 through 18, we were shown how important it is as Christians to look at all of life, not from our immediate circumstances, but instead to be able to see the circumstances of our lives from God's perspective, to see the bigger, greater picture of Christ being proclaimed in all things That was Paul's aim for the Philippians. Helping them to look beyond the dangers, toils, and snares of daily life to see God's bigger, better, greater plan. And that's the attitude that John Patton had. I don't care how I'm going to go, because no matter what it is, we're all going to go. But I'm in Christ, and because I'm in Christ... I will be gloriously resurrected and forever be with Christ. Isn't that great? Do you have that kind of perspective? Do you have that mindset about life and death? Well, that wasn't just the philosophy of John G. Patton. This is also the philosophy of the Apostle Paul, which we will see all the more clearly in our text this morning. As we press on in our series through Paul's letter to Philippi, we we see Paul's great aim, his great passion in life, and what that means about how he lives his life from day to day. So come along with me now and consider what God has for us in our text as we begin in that short uh, second part of verse 18 in chapter 1 and work through verse 26. "'Yes, and I will rejoice.'" If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this... I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. As we think about the text this morning, we're going to ask three questions that the text will help us to answer. We need to ask these questions of ourselves. So the first big question we find there at the end of verse 18 through verse 20. What is your greatest passion in life? What is your greatest passion in life? Before we get to Paul's answer to that question, first look at verse 19. We get a clear indication of his confidence. A clear indication of Paul's assurance and hope that keeps him from being anxious about his circumstances. He tells the Philippians that he is rejoicing, and his rejoicing comes as a result of knowing that the Philippians are praying for him, and knowing that the Spirit of God is working in and through him. So his confidence is built on the prayers of God's people and the help of the Holy Spirit. And what's the result? He says, this will turn out for my deliverance. Now, what people sometimes do is they think something like, I prayed for it, others are praying for it, I'm believing God for this to happen, therefore it will happen. But that's not how things work, is it? That's not the point of prayer. That's not the kind of confidence we're, we're called to have. That's not what Paul is saying here we need to know that Paul isn't referring to physical deliverance. The word he uses for deliverance is also translated quite often as salvation, but not in the sense of one's eternal, final salvation. that's, That's about our justification, our having Christ's righteousness given to us, and on down that road. But rather, this is a salvation that refers to a deliverance for which He stands in, a salvation for which He stands in, that He can have confidence and hope. Not, not the hope that we often think of. Not a, not a hope of, I hope this will happen. But a sure foundation. A sure foundation that on the day of the last judgment, I stand with God's people vindicated and declared innocent. That's what He means here. He's confident in His Final deliverance. So you see, Paul's great hope, Paul's great aim is not even looking toward a day when he might be released from the prison in which he resides. That doesn't even seem to be on his mind as some great priority. Rather, what he's saying is, is, look, I know you're praying for me, and I know the Spirit is at work within me, so I'm more than confident that in the end, all of this will be well, And I will be delivered from this life and brought to the next no matter what Caesar decides to do with me while I'm here. Paul said the same thing at the end of 2 Timothy. Really, 2 Timothy is the end of his life. 2 Timothy 4.18, Paul wrote, The Lord will rescue or deliver me from every evil deed and bring me safely into His heavenly kingdom. So Paul had absolute confidence in his ultimate deliverance. He had no question about that. But it wasn't because of himself. Notice, he doesn't root all of this in his being an apostle, being a preacher, being a letter writer or a church planner. No, he's resting it on the prayer of the Philippians that would bring greater measures of the Spirit into his life. More literally here, Paul is saying, through the prayer of you, and supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. So this this isn't just the help of the Spirit, this is the Spirit Himself. Paul is suggesting that the presence of the Holy Spirit will be supplied to him through the prayers of the Philippians. In some mysterious way, their prayers are linked together with God's furnishing the Spirit to him, and they provide the help that he needs in in the face of everything ahead of him. With courage. So, where does this lead? It leads into verse 20. It is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. So, let's break down the language here and then we'll talk about what he's saying. Paul says that this is his eager expectation and hope. How else can we say that? What else could we call that? His passion. Paul's drive. His great aim at the end of his life. What is it? That I will not at all be ashamed. He's not going to back away from Christ. He has nothing to apologize for. He has no reason to hide who he is and who he's with and who he represents. But that With full courage, now as always, he says. He has absolute confidence, just as has always been the case. Christ will be honored in my body. My life, my being, my body will honor the Lord Jesus Christ, whether by life or by death, whether I'm living or dying. So we have Paul's passion here, what he lives for. And he explains it with two components. First, that he's not ashamed of the Lord Jesus Christ. And second, that Christ would be honored in Paul, whether he's living or dying. And all of that is bolstered by the prayers of the saints and the supply of the Holy Spirit that comes as a result of those prayers for him. So, what can we hear Paul saying here? That his great passion in life is found in everything that he does in his body that makes Christ look as great and glorious as he is. So we have to ask the question of ourselves. What is our great passion? It's very obvious what Paul's is. It's quite obvious looking at his life and all that he does that his passion isn't just something he talks about. It is something that is worked out day by day. What about us? Now, to be passionate about the Lord Jesus Christ doesn't mean that we sell our possessions and quit our jobs and go onto the mission field and give up our hobbies so we can spend all of our time doing stuff at church. No, I believe the Bible gives us ample evidence that Christian lives... Christian people are called to live normal, peaceful, quiet lives in this world as productive citizens doing normal things that we do in this world. That's not the point here. In fact, I actually believe to live a life with Christ as your greatest treasure, with Christ as your great passion in life in this world, working a regular job, engaging in your favorite hobbies, raising your kids, paying your mortgage, fixing your car, mowing your lawn, all of that is really difficult to do at times in Christ. When we're living life as Christians, there's a sense of our need to keep our head in the game no matter what we're doing. When we're making decisions at work, it's remembering that we need to make those decisions as Christian people, not compromising ethical principles, even if our industry happens to overlook those certain things. When we're on the ball field with our kids, how do we respond to other parents or other teams or even the referees? They're people too. That matters. Or when someone hits our car on the road, when, when someone attacks us on the internet, when, when the neighbor's dog tears up our yard, how are we going to respond to those things? Those are especially the moments when we need to keep our hearts fixed on the fact that our great passion in life as Christians ought to be the Lord Jesus Christ. And our response to those situations says a lot about whether or not He really is our great passion. What does it look like to our neighbors when we respond to the difficulties of life? Paul says, whether by life or by death, Christ is honored in my body. And so we might say, whether I'm being wronged or cheated or fired or discriminated against or maligned, whatever's going on, I want to honor Christ in my body. I want to honor Christ with my life. It's not just for an apostle or a missionary or a pastor to say, it's for every Christian. Another way for us to think about this is to ask what we tend to focus our hearts and our minds on regularly. When all is quiet, when you're laying in bed at night and nothing else is vying for your attention, when you're standing in the shower, that's where we all do all of our great thinking in the shower, what are we most prone to think about? You know, that says a lot about the things that are trying to compete to be the greatest treasures of our lives. That's not to say that we don't love Christ. That's not to say that we need to check our salvation. It's just to say that we we need our minds renewed daily. We need our hearts daily reoriented to keep us thinking toward Christ in such a way that that all of those things that come to mind, all of the things that we are interested in and that we want to, to pay attention to, that all of them are run through first thinking about Christ and what Christ has done and how Christ responds to those circumstances. So let's all consider that question with Paul's example here. What is your greatest passion in life? And how do the circumstances of my life get interpreted as a result of that? How do I respond to the things that come into my life if Christ is my greatest treasure? That's our first question this morning. Second question, and this really gets at the heart of the passage today in verses 21 through 24. Do you long to be with Christ? Do you long to be with Christ? Verse 21 has long been one of my favorite verses in all of Scripture. And I love what Paul does here when we look at these four verses together. Two main things. They're both outlined in verse 21 and worked out in verses 22 through 24. Verse 21 identifies a life that gives Christ His rightful place in our lives. And and we just discussed that. He is our passion, for to me, my passion is... Is to live in Christ. That's what Paul's saying. Everything I do as I live, I live unto Christ. We'll come back to that, but let's think really back even to verse 20. The very last word of verse 20 is, is death. And then in verse 21, we see the word die. So if we take life out of this equation for a second, here's what Paul says. It is my great passion that Christ will be exalted in my body by death, for to me, to die is gain. Wow, really? In other words, if I look at death as something to be gained, if death is gain for me, then Christ will be exalted in my dying. Christ will be given the place in my life that He deserves because I see death as gaining something. And that helps us to answer the how question of making Christ our greatest passion in life, right? How can I get to a place where Christ is my greatest treasure in life? Right here. See your death as gain. Why does Paul say that, though? How is death gain. He shows us in verse 23. My desire is to depart. Why? To be with Christ. Now, sometimes we grow uncomfortable talking about this. If you talk about this with people, sometimes they think you're hoping you would die tomorrow, or that we're a danger to ourselves. But, but that's not the point here, is it? The, the point is, if you follow Paul's line of thinking... I love Christ, I'm passionate about Christ, I want to honor Christ, but my greatest desire more than anything is to be with Christ. Free from sin, free from the the trials of life, free from these circumstances that keep me tied up with temptation. I want to be with Christ more than anything. I want to be in His presence day by day by day. That's greater than anything we could trace out in this life. I really hope that sort of captures all of our hearts on a very profound and important level. Do you long to be with Christ? And that's going to change how we respond to every circumstance we encounter in this life. It's why elsewhere Paul can say things like, radical things like, Be sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Isn't that a strange way of saying something? Be sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Which means if I go to the doctor tomorrow and he tells me I have six months to live, I'm going to have a lot of questions. I'm going to have a lot of things to work through. I'm going to be sad about that, no doubt about it. We can't deny the fact that death is not our friend, but our enemy. However, for the Christian, the reality of what's to come is far greater than what is. We get to be with Christ. Now that doesn't mean we spend this life just sitting around and waiting to die, but it it does mean that when we're facing all of the trials in this life, all of the bad news that comes our way, all of the hard situations we have to face, that there's no it doesn't mean we don't have reason for hope. No, we need to have the attitude of John Patton. Well, we're all going to die one day, so you may be eaten by worms, I may be eaten by cannibals, but at the end of it all, if we're both in Christ, we're going to be gloriously resurrected and restored, and we get to be with Christ forever and ever. Let's rejoice in that. Let's look forward to that. The worst they can do to us is kill us, and then we are with Christ. But... That's not all that Paul says, is it? We still have to live. And Paul addresses that. Again, think about verse 20 again. My great passion is that Christ will be honored in my body by life. And verse 21, for to me to live is Christ. Verse 22, if I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. And then verse 24 and this is necessary on your account. So Paul is saying here, honoring Christ with my body while I'm on this earth means engaging in fruitful labor for the sake of the kingdom. And this is necessary for your good, Philippians, for your good, Christians, for your benefit, that I would serve you and work for you. So I'm going to take all the time I have in this life to spend myself in pursuit of doing everything I can for the sake of those I've been called to love and to serve. So you see, there's, there's some parallel tracks running here. And you even see Paul's honest struggle in verse 23. He says, I'm, I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ. That is far better than living life as it is right now. He wants to be with Christ. But his time on earth is not over. He has work to do. And so long as the Lord keeps him here, he's going to do that work. Now think about how we can answer this in the form of a question. Because this gets to the heart of the bigger question as to whether or not we long to be with Christ. I want to give you a few examples. How do we think about this? There's the Epicurean approach to life. Epicurus was a Greek philosopher. He's, created, he's credited with the philosophy of, of hedonism. The Epicurean would say, for to me to live is to have fun and to have all the pleasure I can have. They might have a job, but their attitude is, I just do this so that I can have money to have fun. That's the important thing in life. You only live life one time, and recreation and pleasures are what give my life meaning. So for to me, to live is pleasure. And if I don't have pleasure, I don't have life. That's the Epicurean way of thinking. We all know people like that, probably. Maybe some of us think along those lines. There's the Stoic approach. The Stoic approach says, to me, to live is to be strong and tough and in control. Never look like you're sweating. Always tough. Always making things work. Always being in control. Always being in charge. It's the person who doesn't ever want to show any kind of weakness or any kind of need for help. It's full of pride and self-assurance. Or maybe... The moral approach. That's one who says, for to me, to live is to do the right thing in the right way so that I can be a good person. That's pretty common, right? A person who sets up whatever their standard of morality is and seeks to live for it and says, I'm a good person because I did this. But here's the thing. For all of these kinds of people, and there are many more, when tragedies and trials and troubles come, Their pleasure or their sense of control or their thought of being a good person can be taken away in an instant. And so in their definition of life, if it doesn't change, they collapse. All meaning is instantly lost. Now, I think most people are kind of a mixture of these ideas. You probably won't meet a person who will call themselves an Epicurean or a Stoic or a Moralist, but but probably more than any of these, we can identify with ourselves that we've chosen something to live is blank. Fill in the blank. Family, friends, career, our children, our spouse. We easily say it every single day. Not, Not with our... Not with our words necessarily, but we say it. To me, to live is to have this or that in a certain way. And, and, and when the circumstances of life go after your bottom line, you will utterly collapse or you will be forced to come to the end of yourself and seeing you're relying on the wrong thing. So what Paul is driving at for us here is that there's only one way to actually define life in a way that means something no matter what's going on around me. There's only one bottom line. There's only one important thing that will stand up to everything else. To live is Christ. But Paul, you're in prison. You're about to die. And he says, so what? I may live... I may die. It doesn't matter. It hasn't touched my life because my life isn't here. My life is in Christ. And so, if your life is Christ, you don't have to struggle through all of these other challenges in the way that we do when our hope is misplaced. And so, if for you to live is your career, if your career is collapsing, your whole life is collapsing. But the problem's not the circumstances of your life. The problem is your definition of life. Do you see that? If all, if all of your life is collapsing because your career is collapsing, it's because your career is your life. Or here's Paul. Paul loves his friends. He's riding to the Philippians, his favorite church. Now he's separated from them. He's locked in prison. He doesn't get to see anybody. But Paul's friends are not his life. There are a lot of people who, who live for their children, or they live for their, their spouse, they live for their family, they live for their friends. That's, that's all a lot more noble, I guess, than living for your career, but what are you going to do when they die? What are you going to do when your life is lying in a casket? Paul's friends were not his life. If your life collapses when the thing that you love collapses, it means your love is where your, uh, your, your love is where your life is. That's what Jesus said, right? Where your heart is, where your treasure is, that's where your heart will be also. And so your problem's not your circumstances. Your problem is what you treasure, because that becomes your definition of life. But if our life is in Christ, if we can truly say, for to me to live is Christ, we know how to answer the big question as to whether or not we long to be with Christ. Do you long to be with Christ? Think about that honestly. Well, I want a little bit longer. If Christ said tomorrow, you will die. But Lord, I really want to get recognized for that big project I'm finishing up at work. Lord, I I didn't get to to take all the trips I wanted to take, just a few more years so I can fit those in. Lord, I, I I didn't get to... I didn't get to do all the things I wanted to do with my, my children, with my spouse. Can I just have some more time for those? None of those are wrong. None of those are, are bad in themselves. But do they define your life? Can we truthfully say, as I live in this life, I live on to Christ. But really I understand that to die is gain. It may be scary, We've never done it before, so certainly there's going to be some anxiety about it. But ultimately, do we see it as gain? Do we long to be with Christ? Well, third and final question this morning, verses 25 and 26. Do you live for the joy of others? Paul conclude that, concludes that the point of his life at the time of his writing was to remain on this earth as an apostle, giving his life for the progress and joy of God's people in the faith. I absolutely love how he says this. Paul's great aim as an apostle is for their joy. This is the same thing Jesus expresses in John chapter 15. Remember there, Jesus is talking about the true vine and the Father being the vine dresser and us being the branches. And he gets to the end of that section and he says in, in John 15, 11, These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. So you see, this isn't some peripheral thing that Paul's doing. This is at the very heart of Jesus' longing for his people, that we would have joy in him. Notice Paul's way of saying it, joy in the faith. That is, joy in Jesus Christ and all that is yours because of Him and who He is. Do you live for the joy of others? What does that look like for us? It looks like daily dying to ourselves and living not for our own advantage but for the advantage of others. To die to ourselves that we would live upon Christ that others might find their great joy in Him. Living for the joy of others may be as big as going to the New Hebrides Islands under the threat of being eaten by cannibals just for the opportunity to tell them about the Lord Jesus Christ and salvation that can be found only in Him. But it doesn't have to be something like that. It could be living to the advantage of another person by being willing to bear their burdens and simply point them to the hope that's found in Jesus Christ. It could be loving a brother or sister, giving up your time or your resources to to meet a need for them because you have a passion for Jesus Christ. And with your body, you want to honor Him in life. And in doing that, you're able to die to yourself, give up something of yourself for their good, that they might be helped along to have have greater joy in Christ. It could be as simple as serving a brother or sister. I remember a time I was in training in the army. One night we'd finished a 10-day training exercise. We were all very cold and wet and tired. And I, I put out my sleeping bag to lay it out to get a few hours of sleep. And I discovered it was covered in ants crawling inside and out. The whole thing was unusable. Soon after that, another guy who was a Christian, he came to me. He asked what was going on, so I showed him. He was completely demoralized. He he left, and he came back a few minutes later, and he handed me a sleeping bag, and he said, here, I was able to get this for you. I was so grateful. The next morning, I, I woke up, and I walked by where he was sleeping, and I noticed that he was laying on the ground. No sleeping bag, nothing. He just had a towel rolled up under his head. He saw his brother in Christ, me, in a bad situation, discouraged, and he died to himself to give me a bit of joy in that moment. That's a simple thing for most people. But when you're cold, wet, and tired after ten days, it's a big deal. That's not a small thing. That's an act of love. That's living for the joy of someone else. That's putting myself second because I want to love them, because my life is not in this world. My life is in Christ. You see, living for the joy of others may be taking, uh, taking on the important task of talking to someone that doesn't know Christ about the gospel. If I really love my family and my friends and my neighbors, I'm going to find a way to use the gifts that God has given to me to point them to the cross of Jesus Christ. Friends, some of you here today, the greatest thing I can do for your joy is to call you to look to Jesus Christ. God's call on every man, woman, and child on the face of this planet is to live a perfect life according to His law. But you will admit readily that there's a problem with that. You will say, as everyone says, nobody's perfect. You're right, nobody's perfect. But that's God's standard. And so we're all in trouble. We need perfection. But thanks be to God that perfection is found in the Lord Jesus Christ who lived a law-fulfilling life that we could not live, who died a sinner's death that every one of us deserves to die, who was buried in the ground and raised from the dead by the power of God that we too might find all of our life in Jesus Christ. And so God calls on us to place our faith, our hope, our trust in the Lord Jesus that we might live. The penalty of sin is death, but in Christ we find life. And in Christ we can say, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain because I get to be with Him forever and ever. I get to commune with Him unhindered forever And ever, will you look to Christ that you might live? Brothers and sisters, may it be said of our own lives that we live for the joy of others. May it be said of us that our great progress as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, the efforts of our lives are expended for the joy of others in Jesus Christ. May our passion be Jesus Christ. And as we long to be with Him, may we give of ourselves for the joy of others so that the world, in seeing God's people in the church, have ample cause to give glory in Jesus Christ. What is your passion? What is your passion? Do you long to be with Christ? Do you live for the joy of others? May God help all of us to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel that that our hearts may be fixed on answering these questions like the Apostle Paul, ever focused, ever content in the Lord Jesus Christ.